This is episode 230 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Neuronal Diversity, with Dr. Paula Arlotta. Hey everybody, we are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Stem Cell Podcast, rate us and leave a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Paola Arlotta from Harvard University on the podcast to talk about her research on the programming, reprogramming, and modeling of the mammalian cerebral cortex. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming right up. But first, are you attending an upcoming cell or gene therapy conference? Enter to win up to $500 US from Stem Cell Technologies towards your registration fee. The contest closes on November 30th, 2022, and is open to residents of select countries only. Full eligibility rules can be found on the registration form, and you can visit www.stemcell.com slash 2022 conference award to learn more. All right, Arun, I'm kicking off the roundup today with a story that's sure to be big news. And, you know, it brings me back to the the heyday of uh, stem cell and regenerative medicine when it was all new and Hans Kirstead was showing animations of mice that had been paralyzed and crawling back and Garon was getting the trials going. I mean, it was super exciting and it fell super flat. Um, when those trials didn't really progress as we hoped. And I guess spinal cord injury, spinal cord injury, it didn't take a back seat. I mean, there's a lot of research that's been going on in that vein, but it seems like a lot of other things have moved past it, but it's still a huge unmet need. Um, so I, I really like this story and I think it's big news. Uh, and it's about recovery of the ability to walk, which is what it's all about. Um and you know the neurons that orchestrate walking are in the lumbar spinal cord that's in the lower back and the way it works is that the brain broadcasts the commands that you know activates these neurons in the lumbar spinal cord and severe spinal cord injury just blows that up um and even though the neurons located in the, in the spinal cord are not directly damaged by the spinal cord injury in most cases uh, it's the depletion of the the signals coming above. You know, you cut the circuit um, that renders those lower uh, neurons non-functional. But there's been cases, uh, and this is super exciting. I really, really wasn't aware of this, but this is just going on right now and making really great progress in clinical trials. There's cases showing that this epidural electrical stimulation um, can reactivate non-functional neurons in the lumbar spinal cord. Uh, and especially coupled with neurorehabilitation, you have what's called this EES rehab or epidural electrical stimulation rehab. Um, and people recover the ability to walk uh, after severe spinal cord injury. So it's a big deal. But the biological principles of how this works uh, remain unknown. Uh, so it took a, a, a really large group uh, of scientists and physicians and and across the board i'm sure a lot of other people including ariel levine my old compadre 
from my graduate school training at Rockefeller University in the Ali Bribonlu lab. So shout out to Arielle. Nice work here. She's in the middle, but contributed greatly to this work. She's at the NIH doing a lot with the spine. It's a shout out for you, Arielle. Give me a call. Um, anyway, uh, this is a, a lot of a big group led by Jocelyn Block, uh, Jordan Square, and Gregoire Cortine. I mean, I'm killing those pronunciations, but it's a big group from Lausanne, Switzerland, um, and a, a lot of other scientists from all over the world. And what they showed is that uh, when you apply this uh, epidural electrical stimulation in, in the lumbar spinal cord during the neuro rehabilitation, um, they showed this in nine individuals with chronic spinal cord injury. Uh, and what they showed counterintuitively that it, it was mediated, they restored walking in these nine individuals using this EES, and they showed that it, 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 was, it involved a reduction of neuronal activity in the lumbar spinal cord. And so based on this counterintuitive reduction as opposed to activation due to the stimulation, um, they hypothesized that it was a, a activity-dependent selection. So you were getting this honing of these specific neuronal subpopulations. So based on this, there's this idea that there's these unique uh, neuronal cells um, that may be necessary for the recovery of walking after cr chronic uh, spinal cord injury. And this is where it went crazy. I mean, this is a big paper with a lot, a lot of methods, you know, huge. Um, so you, you, you should have a look just at the details, but they then went on to model this EES rehab in mice um, and did single cell seek and spatial transcriptomics um, to show uh, spatially and, you know, high resolution at single cell level uh, an atlas of this recovery from paralysis in mice. And based on that, they identified the actual neurons that were involved in the recovery of walking, showed it was this unique and single population of excitatory interneurons that are nested within the intermediate lamina. And what's crazy here is that these neurons are not required for like learning to walk. You know, you don't need them to learn to walk. They're only needed to recover the ability to walk after spinal cord injury. So I think that's a real twist there, just conceptually. Um, and also that these neurons are really essential. Uh, so they they augmented activity of these neurons and were able to phenocopy the recovery even without EES rehab, which I think is really cool. It hints it may be like a, a cell-based mechanism, absent electrical stimulation, which can be kind of invasive to implant this device. Maybe you can just get these cells going. Um, and also, uh, really importantly, show that if you ablate these cells, that uh, you can't get the recovery uh, of walking even after moderate spinal cord injury. So suggesting that in, in individuals that have moderate injury, that these are also the neurons that are, are um, enabling that recovery uh, of motility. So I, I, I'm really blown away by this story. And I think the takeaway for me also is in the long arc of, of stem cell research and science, we've been so focused on pluripotent cells. And here again is an intrinsic adult stem cell, newly identified, I guess, in this case, that can mediate a, a regenerative function that's really exciting and that we could tap right now. So really, really exciting progress, um, but I, I guess not exactly where I would have uh, predicted. Yeah, this is an earth shattering paper. I mean, this is not in the realm of stuff that we normally cover because it's not necessarily a stem cell centric story, but it's a regeneration story. That is for sure. And like what you alluded to, this was 
you know, spinal cord injury and spinal cord repair was one of the the earliest holy grails of the stem cell field, especially for the stem cell based cell therapy field. You know, like I remember reading about the Geron trials and all of that and how those didn't really pan out. But I mean, the fact that you're able to see this phenomenon, the fact they're able to recapitulate this mechanism of, you know, repair in the mouse model and really take a deep dive into it. And like what you're saying, the the identification of an actual cell population that can be modulated and perhaps restored or even enhanced through a cell therapy, I mean, all these things combined together, they, they this blows my mind. And I, I can't wait to, to, to see what the next step is here when it comes to actually improving the efficacy of the process and maybe even identifying and developing a cell therapy for this. Yeah, exactly. That's it for me is the hack. How are they going to hack this so you don't have to put an implantable device or augment the efficacy of that implantable device? And yeah, there's the idea of mo mobilizing these cells that are already there. But yeah, from us, you know, we're stem cell biologists. We love to get in the dish. There's also this idea these cells weren't really appreciated before. So making interneurons that maybe have this capacity from pluripotent cells could be another way to uh, have an extrinsic uh, cell-based therapy that you could deliver to in, in patients to really, really ramp up this response. So very exciting for anyone uh, with spinal cord injury or has family or, or friends with spinal cord injury. It's a great day. Yeah, fantastic day. And also a reflection about still how little we know about the the cells of the adult body and how plastic they might be in, in helping to restore function in cases such as spinal cord injury. Really Really beautiful, Stoney. I, I do not want this to be to be lost in the weeds in this particular roundup. I'm glad we let off with that one. We're going to move on to a Nature Communications paper uh, coming out of the lab of Gergana Dobreva at the Department of Cardiovascular Genomics and Epigenomics at uh, Heidelberg University in Germany. This is a, a paper focusing on lamin AC. Lamin is a, a nuclear envelope protein that has gotten a lot of publicity over the years because of its role in a lot of different disease states. I mean, one is progeria, this form of accelerated aging, which is linked to this to lamin protein of the lamin complex. But then there's also been examples in the stem cell field. My former mentor, Joe Wu, actually had a, an IPS cardiomyocyte disease modeling paper not too long ago, linking lamin A to cardiovascular disease. And this has actually been something that's demonstrated over the years that there's certain forms of cardiomyopathy that are lim linked to this particular protein complex as well. So I just, you know, I just wanted to to learn more about this really important protein. It seems like in certain situations, there's hubs and nodes of of multiple disease pathways converging on a single protein complex, and I, that's what it's all about here. I think. So the title of this paper is "Lamin AC Dependent Chromatin Architecture Safeguards Naive Pluripotency to Prevent Aberrant Cardiovascular Cell Fate and Function." You know, we talked about lamin and how it's important in adult disease and, and disease states later on, but I think this is diving a little bit in towards more the, the developmental angle and looking at the role of lamin in maintaining pluripotency and also cardiac differentiation. So, so we know that, you know, control of cell faith is really important for development. That's a huge understatement. And they're showing that lamin AC, this protein complex in the nuclear envelope area, can play a key role in chromatin organization during uh, ESC, pluripotent embryonic stem cell differentiation. And in particular, it has an important role in maintaining the, the naive state, the naive pluripotency state, and can also critically regulate cardiogenesis or development of the heart. 
So there's a localization of different cardiac genes and laminin A knockout embryonic stem cells resulting in activation and a shift of the cardiac differentiation program towards cardiomyocytes as opposed to endothelial cells. This is actually also linked to a premature cardiac differentiation, cell cycle withdrawal, and functional abnormalities as well. And a, a famous gene in cardiac development, GATA4, is actually activated by this lamin AC loss. And so that makes sense to me because you know if you're getting a shift towards a cardiomyocyte-specific differentiation pathway, not too surprising that you would see GATA4 hyperactivation since that's one of the master regulators of cardiomyocyte differentiation. And when you lose GATA4 silencing or you have haploid insufficiency, um, you can actually rescue the uh, cardiovascular sulfate choices that are induced by this lamin AC deficiency. Okay. Um, and then they looked at, again, the role of lamin AC in naive pluripotent stem cell state. Um, so ultimately, I think it's a unique angle on the lamin AC story, the lamin story. Um, it's linking. Lamin to cardiac differentiation and also maintenance of the naive pluripotency state. So I just wanted to talk about this because it's a, it seems like it's the the, the protein of choice and the gene of choice for a lot of different uh, you know disease modeling groups out there. It's one of those node proteins and genes that's involved in a lot of different disease states. So worth taking a closer look at. Yeah, for sure. And and I mean, surprising for me, I wouldn't have. Uh... I would. I'm surprised at this. The context of this uh, interrogation here, because you look up lamin, and it's linked to all these degenerative diseases. It seems, you know, and, and that makes sense, I guess, with the its role in mediating DNA repair. So I guess my mind just goes to that. So having a a, a role in development, and here specifically in pluripotency and differentiation, I think kind of recasts and reframes my view. Uh, of the role of the protein, as you said there, it does a lot of things as a node protein, but um, I just never ha have seen it. And I'm sure it has been studied in this context, but I've never seen it studied in this developmental context. And it makes me wonder, like, so in addition to the degenerative diseases that afflict, uh, you know, people with progeria or other lamin-based diseases, I wonder if, if developmentally they're all banged up too. You know, you would expect to have maybe increased incidence of uh, heart defects or other um, developmental defects. I don't know if you're aware of that, but I guess it, it kind of increases the scope uh, of uh, a disease and need uh, for those patients that are affected by these diseases, perhaps. But I'm not sure. Is there a phenotype in development or a, a neonates affected with some of these diseases that you're aware of? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, the the progeria example, I mean, it, it is I guess if you think about it, it is a developmental anomaly, right? These folks are experiencing accelerated development, but it's I think it's postnatal development. So I actually don't know. I don't know that much about progeria. I don't know when the actual disease state sets in. Is it like after five years of age? Because from what I remember, these kids are like in their early teens when they start to experience these like really accelerated aging phenomenon and phenotypes. So um, definitely worth looking into there. But the other thing is, you know, this is a protein in the lamin complex. That's it's not a transcription factor, right? It's a structural protein in the cell, and the fact that it's able to have so many different regulatory roles, even as independent of being a transcription factor, it, it's kind of cool. It tells you the link between even the structural proteins and the the transcriptional network. And you know, things are things are complex in cell biology, to say the least. 
Yes, complex, and the, the complexity is only uh, you know magnitude of that complexity is increased when you consider how do you treat uh, something that has a role in so many different things. But uh, nice to have the insight there. Another uh, lack of insight, which I just can't stop talking about, is the what is going on with the hematopoietic stem cell. I know you guys are tired of hearing about it from me, but I think this is worth talking about. I just talked in the last episode about uh, this kind of misconception about the amplification of hematopoietic stem cells in the fetal liver, where that actually happens. You know, we don't really get it. And uh, this story, which cites all that as as kind of doctrine in terms of the progression of hematopoiesis in the introduction there, they're still citing, I think, outdated information based on what we reported last episode. So that tells you and underscores uh, how much we have left to learn about hematopoiesis. This is a, a resource um, from Hui Chang at the Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences in Tianjin, China. And uh, the idea here is to understand where and when, really specifically when, hematopoietic stem cells colonize the bone marrow, all right? So, you know, hematopoietic stem cells have been really extensively studied at very high resolution in animal models, mouse, zebrafish. Um, and that's where we get all this dogma because we can really take minute snapshots at, at really incremental stages in, in both these model animals. And based on that, we have this idea that the HSCs are first generated in the, in the AGM, at embryonic, this is in the mouse, at, at day 10.5. Then they go to the fetal liver at 11.5, where they expand dramatically, according to the intro here. No fault to them. They do expand dramatically, maybe not to the extent that it has always been thought. Then migrate to the fetal uh, spleen at around E15.5, ultimately colonize the bone marrow at 16.5 to 17.5, right? So that's really well defined in, in the mice, although the trajectory is a bit murky. But in humans, we really don't have a, a, a really fine point on the temporal dynamics there. We know that the HSCs can be detected in the AGM around 32 days post-fertilization, but they're there for like over a week, persist up until day 42, you know, which is uh, around six weeks. Um, but then after uh, colonizing the embryonic liver uh, and maturing, it's not until much later where there's even evidence of hematopoietic cells, like a month later, uh, where in vitro studies uh, and immunolabeling has suggested that there's HSCs in the human fetal bone marrow, right? So that's at like 10 weeks post-conception, um, full four weeks after their first leave in the AGM. And wh what they're doing in the meanwhile and how they're transiting is not really uh, well uh, defined. And even the, the, the functional evidence showing that these are true HSCs um, is not there, right? So this is unknown, and and that's what uh, motivated the Cheng Lab to do this really comprehensive uh, atlas uh, using single cell seek to identify temporally where these things are, um, because it's not really just the cells themselves, but it's the niche, and and this is what I think has been lacking is we don't understand how these cells uh, colonize and are maintained critically, how they're maintained um, once they colonize their site. Uh, we know that there's a bone marrow niche, right, that's composed of mesenchymal and vascular endothelial cells. We know SDF1 is expressed, kit ligand is expressed. Uh, but the, because the timing isn't uh, clear, we don't know uh, when to look for the niche components that may be regulating that initial seeding process. So that's what led to this uh, transcriptional atlas. And they use single cell seek in the fetal bone marrow and, and the spleen 
um, in between 10 and 14 weeks post-conception. And this is what was key here. They showed that uh, functional HSCs don't emerge in the bone marrow until 12 weeks post-conception. So they put a really fine point on when that goes down. But here's the key. They show that unlike um, the dogma, there's no, uh, at, in the time points they're looking at, they didn't detect any functional HSCs in the spleen uh, uh, until 14 weeks. So within their 10 to 14 week bracket, they were looking, they saw bone marrow HSCs at 12, but they saw nothing in the spleen out to the later time point 14. And this is uh, the, the tool they use. They, by comparing the single cell seek of the niche and, and HSC interactions between the, the bone marrow where they were and the spleen where they were not, they were able to identify these ligand receptor pairs that are likely involved in, in fetal HSC migration colonization and maintenance. So I think that was a key kind of mechanistic insight here is they, they created this resource and this database of factors that are present in the bone marrow and not in the spleen. And by doing this subtractive analysis, they can kind of put their finger on what are the critical factors that mediate colonization, maintenance and expansion. And I think that that is the resource that's gonna be useful for the rest of the HSC community and, and hematology community to, to try and understand and, and, and replicate uh, the differentiation and perhaps the expansion of a bona fide a hematopoietic stem cell, which is still, uh, I think, the, the holy grail uh, of hematology. You and your HSCs, but indeed, I think this is a, a an amazing resource, especially for folks, like you said, trying to figure out HSC differentiation for from human, human pluripotent stem cells, right? I mean, this is uh, the the pathway and the the cell types that you're hoping to replicate during that differentiation process going straight from those immature HSCs which are the, really the focus here to the the more adult ones and the more mature ones which are right now that's probably the, the vast majority of HSCs that are being used for transplantation studies but I think for for differentiation and fine-tuning differentiation you got to use a data set you have to use a data set like this for sure. And I, I mean, there's so many of these data sets coming out and I'm highlighting almost every single one. And I know it's exhausting for some of you who don't care, but I think that for me, it's almost like the last domino to fall. You know, we, we were about to talk to Dr. Arlotta, who's like modeling psychiatric disorders, you know, and neurodevelopmental disorders, something I thought we'd never touch using cells in a dish. So I really think that this is the last domino to fall, or one of the last dominoes to fall for me is getting a bona fide HSC from pluripotent cells. I wasn't able to do it. I think a lot of other stem cell biologists have been frustrated by this, but I, I really think we're going to get there because, you know, we've done so many other things uh, as a scientific community. We're making synthetic embryos, for goodness sake. So I just, I, I'm, I'm, I feel like every one of these studies is another brick in the wall towards uh, uh, building, uh, 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 I don't know where to go with that analogy, but an HSC made out of bricks, my friend. <laughs> yes, an HSC made out of bricks. And I think uh, a resource, a tremendous resource for the community, someone can pick up where you were unable to achieve success, you know, pick up where you failed, Daylon. And I'm sure <laughs> this will happen in the next 15 to 20 years. I think it, it it will become a reality one day. I'm really excited to to see it happen in large part, thanks to data sets like this. And finally, we're going to talk about something very, very different, and we've covered it a bit here on the show. We had Gene Loring on the show, who actually has an interest in this area, basically these stem cell zoos or iPSC-based zoos that you may have heard about for 
preserving endangered species and for conservation processes and conservation attempts at conservation. So this is an iScience paper from actually from an old friend of mine from Sebastian Dika, who actually trained with in grad school, who now has his own group at uh, MDC Berlin. It's uh, the title is Induced Pluripotent Stem Cells and Cerebral Organoids from the crit Critically Endangered Sumatran Rhinoceros. Okay, it's, it's, it's a fun paper to talk about. And the concept, I think, is pretty simple. You know, there's fewer than 80 Sumatran rhinos out there on Earth, and they are experiencing habitat loss, poaching, limited breeding possibilities. This is a big problem for the species, and it's going to keep leading to a population decline. And it's not just the rhino uh, where you can envision something like this being applied. There's a lot of endangered species out there, too. So to stop the erosion of genetic diversity, as they say, they want to reintroduce genetic material through breeding, of course. But the problem is you need a, a, a set of gametes from these endangered species. And if they're the animals are running out, you know, there's not many animals left. You got to get the, the genetic material from somewhere, right? So the, the propagation rate of captive breeding is apparently way too low. So that's a big problem. And so you got to figure out other, other ways to enhance the populations potentially and to perhaps rescue these species from extinction. And income IPSCs, right? It's an application for IPSCs that we don't think about a lot. But as you know, one of the dreams of the IPSC field is, especially for humans, is to create bona fide gametes, right? And uh, we've been able to do this to some extent in mice. And the hope is that we'd be able to generate gametes from different species as well. And in anticipation of that, you can create and bank IPSCs from different endangered species, such as the Sumatran rhino, right? And uh, that's exactly what they did here. So they were able to generate IPSCs from literally the last male uh, Malaysian Sumatran rhino, which actually apparently died in 2019. So I'm guessing the skins or somatic, somatic populations were cryopreserved and they were able to thaw those cells out and give the rhino a new life. It's kind of a, a poetic way to think about it, I suppose. Um, and then in addition to just making the iPSCs, they differentiated them into cortical organoids, which I, I don't exactly know why you would do that. Make rhino cortical organoids is kind of cool. It's, it's a cool thing to do. Um, uh, but just to show, you know, the IPSCs are bona fide. You can turn them into multiple lineages, including the cerebral organoids. Also able to make some cardiomyocytes from them and the endodermal populations too. Ultimately, yes, it would have been super cool to generate the the gametes from these rhino IPSCs and then to save the day and save the species all in one paper. But that's that's not kind of what they did here. But that's the long-term vision. And I think it's a, a worthy one, a wor something worthy of uh, highlighting. It's a noble one, I think. You know, there's a uh, thanks to humans, sadly, so many of these amazing species are going extinct. I mean, this is the the most recent mass extinction event in the history of the earth is human-induced extinction. And so maybe we should do our part in reversing that, don't you think? Absolutely. I'm just sitting here weeping for that last male Sumatran rhino. I mean, that's so much pressure. You probably buckled under the pressure. So no wonder you succumbed. <laughs> but um, you know, really as a as a someone who's got a foot in reproductive biology and someone who who's been outspoken, I think. I would say about how I don't think it would ever be safe to apply induced pluripotent stem cell derived gametes in humans for reproductive purposes. I've said that. 
I've said that on the air. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was a mistake because I'm going to be eating crow one of these days. But I want to I want to say that I get it. It totally makes sense. Um, and f- from a conservation angle, but also I really appreciate that if we're going to be able to do it in human ever, it's because we will have done it so many times in non-mice, you know, larger monoovulatory species for the purpose of conservation where there's a real need, um, but in in an animal model that's more complex and it's going to be a major challenge. Um, And it is going to be a major challenge. I mean, Arun, come on, it's a high bar. You want them to actually save the species in this one paper? Uh, The real (laughs) challenge is, is, you know, making the, the somatic cells that will then uh, induce the actual gamete from a primordial germ cell. There's many components that need to come into play. So I'm not surprised they didn't go all the way down that road, but uh, demonstrating differentiation potential in the organoids. And I think, you know, pioneering, putting a flag in it, saying, you know, this is this is the material. Now, please, someone with an interest and uh, with motivation, come and use these cells to make primordial germ cells and perhaps gametes. I think that that's where I would be my first stop. You know, I'm calling Dr. Hayashi, I'm calling Dr. Saitu, Azim Sarani, I'm calling Hannah, I'm saying, hey guys, go after the rhino because there's cells there and there's a need. So I think it's going to be really exciting days in the next, you know, years and decades to see how induced pluripotent stem cell derived gametes are applied for conservation conservation purposes. And as a kind of maybe a prelude uh, to treating infertility in humans Although you know how I feel about that, Arun. <laughs> yes, I'm well versed in how you feel about that. But I, that's a great way to think about it. These are all stepping stones towards perhaps down the road, you know, the that holy grail of iPSC derived human iPSC derived gametes. Um, I think the other thing to highlight here is the difficulty of actually growing iPSCs from a random species like rhino or just mm-hmm. the cell culture optimization that you have to do to make cortical organ you can't just buy as far as i know um stem cell technologies rhino m teaser i don't know <laughs> you know we'll uh we'll get back to you about that one maybe stem cell has some rhino m teaser in the works but as far as i know it's not commercially available and it's, and combined with the differentiation approach it's actually turning these into cerebral organoids in a completely de novo media it's wild to me and other groups are are doing similar stuff with like non-human primate ipscs it's t- t- very difficult to grow these things so big shout out big props to to sebastian and his team for real it ain't easy you gotta almost start over no no rhino mts are out there so it's a pretty high bar you know actually uh, i gotta back up because taking a deeper dive into the methods here Shout out to Stem Cell Technologies because they actually used M-Teaser to grow these cells. They actually It wasn't Rhino-specific M-Teaser, but it was standard M-Teaser 1 that they actually used for adapting these Rhino iPSCs to culture. That That's mind-blowing to me. And that has implications about kind of the, the conservation of the different genetic pathways used to, to create iPSCs, ranging from human to, to Rhino. So the fact that they're able to actually indeed use a commercial media m teaser which we all talk about here on the show uh for this culture is that that's that's incredible i'm speechless so that's pretty much a commercial for m uh, m teaser and stem cell technology but we got another message from stem cell technologies coming up before we get to the interview with paula arlada and that is this 
Neuroscientists looking for more predictive power in their disease models are increasingly adopting human pluripotent stem cells in their research. Stem cell technologies offers products, protocols, and training to support HPSC-derived neural models. Explore their collection of technical videos and webinars on neurological disease modeling by visiting www.stemcell.com slash neural disease model. All right, everybody. Joining us today is Dr. Paula Arlada, who is the Golub Family Professor and Chair of the Department of Stem Cell and Regenerative Biology at Harvard University. Dr. Arlada's lab focuses on the programming, reprogramming, and modeling of the mammalian cerebral cortex. Her lab is developing new high-throughput in vitro models of human cortical development and neurodevelopmental disease. Paula, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. The pleasure is all ours, believe me. Uh, one big focus of your work is the modeling of neuropsychiatric and or neurodevelopmental disorders, perhaps best exemplified by your recent publication in Nature that used organoids to examine the consequences of haploinsufficiency of genes that have been linked to autism spectrum disorder. Now, I've always thought that using cell-based models to examine disorders in higher order behavior and brain function is really the greatest challenge. I'll be honest, I was always been skeptical. I've always thought, how can we even model like thought and consciousness? Although, you know, that, that's that's putting a high bar. Tell us how, how you go about this and, and what the implications are for understanding and or mitigating the costs of autism spectrum disorder and other neuropsychiatric disorders. First of all, welcome to the club. We all are skeptical. <laughs> we all were skeptical when we started this type of science, right? At the end of the day, what we're really asking here is whether you can build from a stem cell that is derived you know, from a sample of blood or a sample of skin, if you can derive from those cells some structure as complex as even a part of the human brain. So we should be skeptical and we should think that this is difficult. But it's also true that nature builds um, organs in the body through a lot of principles. And there is the principle of self-organization of structure and development in organs that plays out in vivo in an embryo, much like it plays out in vitro in an organoid. So I will say that this field of building human brain organoids be dramatically helped by the fact that nature itself, it's, it's helping us build these tissues in the culture dish. And, once we got into this type of work, we really realized that although uh, human brain organoids are not exactly the same as human brains, they do uh, produce and develop properties and features and characteristics of the human developing brain that can be immensely useful for understanding this tissue, both in the context of normal development and function, but also in the context of disease. Um, so we got into this field um, first and, and, and foremost because we saw the opportunity. We saw the opportunity to be able to study aspects of brain development and disease that, frankly, as a field, we never, ever had access to. Who has ever watched like a human embryo develops, right, in, in utero to understand how the human brain versus the brain of another organism is formed? Nobody has. <laughs> And how do we know how autism arises through processes of development that may go wrong in the womb? We will never, as it should be, have access to that kind of process in experimental terms. 
So here we are, here we are um, in, in a, some sort of a magical moment in science where technology and progress in stem cell biology has allowed us to develop in vitro models of the, of the human brain that we can use to, for the first time, characterize and experiment with these processes that normal would only, normally would only occur in utero. So um, we enter the field this way with the um, with a lot of hope and but also an understanding that it was going to be dif difficult. And what we saw over the years uh, through a community of scientists that invested in this type of early work is that human brain organoids became more and more complex, more and more controllable, more and more uh, amenable to the kind of investigation that um, we want to do into understanding human disease. So as these models, this experimental model of the developing human brain became more and more amenable to research, uh, one could become really concrete about the type of questions that we could ask using these models. And a fundamental question is really related to understanding how certain diseases that are so prominent in society, and I'm talking about neuropsychiatric illnesses and neurodevelopmental diseases such as autism spectrum disorder, for example, they're so prominent and yet we really don't understand the foundations of these diseases. We barely know what part of the brains are affected in autism. We don't know what cell types are affected in the human brain in response to genetics associated with autism. We don't know when during development potential abnormalities could arise. We don't know if every patient has the same origin in terms of the disease. And so if we don't answer these fundamental mechanistic questions, how are we going to get to really thinking about treatment in an informed way? So I think that organoids are a tool, <laughs> are a tool to get to answers that we couldn't get in the past. And they are a parallel tool to the use of animal models. So I don't advocate for one or the other. I think we're studying complex biology of the brain and we're gonna need a variety of different models to answer different questions. But the organoids have a role and they do have a role for a lot of different reasons. One, they um, are human. And so the human brain is different from the brain of that of other organisms. Cells may react uh, from the human brain in different ways, from that of a mouse, for example, of another experimental model. And we can't underestimate that. And it's possible that a lot of the failures of, of drugs developed on animal models in the clinics may be due to this interspecies, species-specific differences between humans and animal models. There is also the fact that we have now a, an incredible amount of genetic information about the psychiatric illnesses. Human genetic studies have told us about genetic risks associated with these diseases. And what the studies have shown us is that in the majority of the cases, uh, being autism or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, these patients don't carry typically single mutations that alone can give you um, a disease, although these cases exist, as we'll talk about perhaps in a moment. They have complex genetic states where many, many loci across the genome could contribute to the development of the of the disease. And so in you know, simple terms, you kind of have to model the human genome and you have to model the genome of that patient. How are you gonna do that in an animal model? You need a human model where the cells themselves came from the patient, 
That model may be reductionist, like a human brain organoid, but it will be a human model. Mm. So that's that's exciting. Um, yes, we'll understand with these models more and more about human development, but where the money is, I really think, is human disease. And so for me, as a developmental neurobiologist, I think over the years I have taken great pleasure in understanding really just how the embryo builds the brain, this incredible process of development that gives us perhaps the brain that, that we have. Um, but now there is an opportunity to perhaps apply this knowledge to understand how brain disease affects the development and then the function of the brain. Mm. And so recently we did, um, we completed a study. It's honestly just the very first step in this direction, but we were very proud of it. And it was a study where we wanted to test the possibility that organoids were good enough to be used as experimental system to tell us how a specific genetic state associated with autism, in this case were unique penetrant single mutations, very, very case, rare cases of autism, of course, have these mutations, but these are important mutations. When inserted um, in an IPS uh, cell, pluripotent stem cell, and made into an organoid, could we take these organoids, compare them to the exogenic control, which are the perfect control, um, performing measurements like single cell sequencing of all the cells or measurement of activity of the, of the neurons and networks, can they tell us what is wrong? Can they tell us how this genetic makeup correlates with abnormalities of development of the brain in what cell types and whether most importantly there is convergence of phenotypes coming from um, organoids that carry different genetic states all risk of ASD. So we did this and we found some things that were pretty amazing. The first thing we found is there are some populational cells among the many, many that are affected, that are made in an organoid, that seems to be more affected. Um, for example, GABAergic interneurons seem to be a class of cells that were affected in this organoid that carried the mutations versus the control. Why I'm excited about that? First of all, is because we could identify some sort of a target, a cellular target in a sea of cells that carry those uh, genetic defects. And the second, because this balance between excitation and inhibition in the brain as a sort of a foundational hypothesis for what may be going on in autism, um, you know, is there and, and the idea that GABAergic interneurons may be affected fits that model. Hmm. The second thing that we found is that it was not just that the cells were affected in general, there was a specific aspect of their development that was affected. And this may be nerdy because I am a developmental neurobiologist. I really can't stop really thinking about the nitty gritty of development. And what we found is that these cells were developing faster or slower. Like they, it was not simply that they were abnormal, they were abnormal in a specific aspect of their development. And this is where we could connect the science to what we knew about what happens to the brain when cells don't develop at the same time and properly. At the end of the day, you get a circuit that is not normal. And the third thing that we found is that uh, it's not only about these big mutations, right? Patients that carry this big mutation have pretty extreme forms of the disease. But also we found that if you take the same mutations and you put them in different genetic contexts, meaning in the genome of different individual possibly, 
then this phenotype um, that you observed in organoids can be buffered somehow by the genomic context. I find this incredible because we're all different as human beings. And it tells us something about how the genome of different people may be able to really, as a whole, buffer out um, this condition of disease. And it connects us really to the majority of the patients with ASD who don't carry any single specific mutation, but carry a genome that may be, you know, on one end or the other of the of the polygenic score spectrum in terms of being able to uh, allow that person to develop a, a disease or not. Hmm. And so lots of new stuff that we didn't know before that has to do with the human genome, that has to do with the human brain um, in a system that is still kind of reductionist, but super, super powerful. I guess we saw the light a little bit at the end of that tunnel, and it's very exciting. And I think a, a lot of this is driven by the amazing technologies you've alluded to organoids which have emerged you know genome sequencing has certainly become so much cheaper over the years and has enabled in combination with crispr cas9 and all these different technologies uh it's it's enabled interrogation of human developmental states and disease states in a way that simply hasn't been possible before the last 10 years i would say and you know we've talked about how this is the golden age of biomedical research in part because of these technologies that are emerging quickly being utilized and implemented in the biotech industry as well. And you're in Boston, and which is, I think, the heart of the biotech industry for the entire world. That's, you know, I was there as well recently. And I, I think that's this that's the truth. Um, we met you mentioned how like your your recent paper, which was in Cell, the single cell atlas of human cortical organoids, it used all the seeks, right? All these different types of single cell seek, ATAC, seek, share seek, even slide seek to the fullest potential. And I think having an affiliation with the Broad Institute in the heart of Kendall Square in Boston is is a it's a big plus because you get to play with these cool new toys as they're just starting to to emerge. Um but one question I have is about, you know, the reality of utilizing some of these technologies uh, that are very cutting edge. Um, how do you democratize some of these technologies, right? It's maybe not always accessible right off the bat, these technologies to brand new labs and, you know, being in Boston and Kendall Square, you get access to these things. Is there a way that you would envision these technologies could be democratized that you know more people would be able to utilize them right off the bat? I think single cell is one example where things are getting cheaper and are more accessible, um, more commercialized. Yeah. But do you think we could do a better job with this as well? Yes. And so first of all, I want to second what you just said about this living this magical moment in time where there is a convergence of new technologies in single single cell um, you know, molecular profiling space, but also the advancement in stem cell biology that have been incredible over the past many, many years, uh, and now you know, being at, uh, culminating in these models today, as well as the ability to perturb systems genetically, right, with uh, at scale, CRISPR screens and, and so on and so forth. That's magical. And that's why we can do this type of work today. I completely agree with you that this comes at a cost. And you can do, you, not every lab will have the opportunity um, and the possibility to access this technology fast enough. And so I think that there is, um, in a way, an opportunity to make things better um, in multiple spaces. On one, uh, on, on one end, as a scientist, must make 
all the data that come out of these large screens and these large profilings with the use of technology available immediately. And there are a lot of um, restrictions, uh, especially when it's human data for releasing even some of this data. And so we somewhat need to get closer to a system where if cells can be used and uh, um, people produce data, the data must become available immediately. And I think NIH is really working in that direction to make this data set uh, accessible to, to people. There is also the fact that this technology must become cheaper and cheaper over, over time. Um, progress is continuing and, and you can see that they do become cheaper and cheaper over, over time. So more and more lab will have access to it. There is the power of also collaborative work among, among labs. There will be some labs that are rooted, for example, you are mentioning the Boston community. Every day I wake up thinking how lucky I am that I am in that community where this kind of collaborations can really be established rapidly and technology is available immediately. Um, I think that there is also an opportunity to collaborate way outside of the context of the local Boston environment. So there are a lot of different ways that the data can be accessible by many and that it could be also collective thinking about what kind of data need to be collected. And this is where the funding agency play a big part putting together large consortia, which at the moment are mostly looking at the actual brain, either the human brain or the mouse brain, a brain made in utero, but uh, in an embryo. But my hope is that very, very soon, this kind of large consortia funded by NIH across multiple sites in the United States and sometimes abroad, abroad can actually focus also on the stem cell derived models of the brain, which are becoming so prominent. So I think it's just a matter of time for that. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I mean, while it's not cheap, the single cell seek is ubiquitous and single cell everything probably soon to follow. I mean, not even kidding. I got two papers in the past week to review. One was single cell seek of the yak ovary and the other was single cell seek of geese ovaries. So, I mean, we're running out of uh, things to seek, I guess, and, and they're throwing anything at the wall. But um, yes, yeah, still not cheap, but uh, becoming more accessible. I just want to shift gears for a minute. Um, talking about, you know, magic and science, and I'll circle back to that. I was at this memorial service for Susan Solomon at Rockefeller University a few weeks back, and I talk about magic. We're talking about this magical moment. I mean, what an incredible force she was for the stem cell field as someone who had no real official training in, in the sciences to have such an impact um, is truly magical. I think that a lot of uh, the movement that you're talking about here and progress uh, really uh, should be credited to, to her efforts and the effort of the NICEF. So a little plug uh, for Dr. Honorary Dr. Solomon, may she rest in peace. Um, but among, among the touching and thoughtful at times hysterical uh, words from the speakers at that memorial, you shared the impact that the woman herself, as well as the support of the NICEF, of course, but really the woman herself had on you as a woman in science. Uh, we were just talking last episode with uh, Jacob Hanna about challenges facing uh, LGBTQ plus representation in science. And he gave credit to the women in science movement uh, as leading the way. Um, so as an advocate and representative of that movement, can you point towards some of the progress uh, that's been made and perhaps speak to some of the challenges that remain and how they might be addressed effectively moving forward? Absolutely, and this is the topic that is very uh, close to my heart. 
And I first wanted to say, since you mentioned how magical that moment was at Susan's memorial just a few weeks ago, um, here you had um, a woman who was a lawyer and a business executive by training that had a vision for science and wanted to change science, but also wanted to change the scientists and her early contributions as well, you know, more recently about the advancement of women and minorities in the STEM fields cannot be really understated. And I think one thing that Susan taught me that I try to remember every time I contribute to this type of initiatives and activities is that Susan told us to be self-accountable for change and to talk for a while, but at some point to take action and do something about it. And so I think that I've seen um, a lot of uh, talk, talking around these uh, topics and issues of, you know, low representation of women and minorities in science, uh, but uh, I think there is still a need for more action. And so I uh, think that each one of us needs to find a Susan in us and get out there and actually do something about the fact that this field is still not as diverse as it should be. So I, I remember, you know, fondly a moment uh, in the early years of NICEF when Susan invited us in New York and there were many women scientists from many different stages of, of their career. I was pretty junior and we were all around the table and she opens the meeting and says, can you each tell me why you think that women have been held back in science? What, what is stopping you from making a bigger contribution? What is stopping more women from joining in medicine and science? Uh, and when her turn came, she said, oh, we've all been waiting for that prince on the white horse to show us the way. And I say, find your horse. <laughs> and I felt like laughing at that moment. And this sentence sort of stayed with me over, over the years. And to this day, sometimes I was like, let's go find that horse. Hmm. We, we can do it that way. Um, I think that if I look at my career, I started my lab in 2007, and I think I see a huge difference between that time and now in terms of, for women in science especially, I think we have grown not only in number, but in, in prominence. And I think that a lot of the type of um, in, interactions with the community or events that would perhaps uh, uh, cut out uh, women more than men um, have been, if not solved, addressed. So I feel that we live now in a, in a moment that is different than what it was for me when I started my lab. There is still a lot of work to do and uh, um, it's heartwarming that a lot of the major institutions, scientific institutions and beyond, are really taking this quite seriously. And so there are concrete initiatives, uh, not only for women in science, but for underrepresented minority in science uh, to increase, um, um, you know, to, to favor their deciding to stay in science and contribute to science and be part not only of, in general, the communities, but also of leadership in science and, and so on and so forth. Um, so I think I see a trajectory that is a good one. It is going in the right direction. There is still a lot of work to do. Yeah, I think we're 
absolutely on the right track and it's been an improvement over time and I'm sure it's going to continuously improve. And I think a part of this is communicating the science that folks, you know, traditionally who haven't been in science, it's communicating that their science appropriately and well and giving them an avenue and an outlet to to speak. And I think hopefully this podcast is, is one of those avenues and outlets. And, um, you know, it's not just... You know, science and communication is something that's really important to us here on the show, obviously, and uh, it's it's really a, a critical part of modern science. Um, but not just in the science itself, in the basic science, but also communication to the general public and even to, to patient populations, because a lot of the work that we're doing these days is very translationally oriented. You being in Boston are, are very well aware of this. You know, a, a basic science study that can emerge from the broad could be very quickly translated into a biotech company and ultimately go into clinical trials very, very rapidly. Um, so properly communicating stem cell advances to patients, I think, is really important because we have so many of these trials, especially for neurodegenerative diseases like what you focus on. And for example, we had uh, Stefan Irian from Blue Rock recently on the show talking about their therapeutic candidates for Parkinson's and so many other trials are happening around the world for treating neurodegenerative diseases. And, and you're, you know, you've emphasized that you are first and foremost, a basic stem cell developmental biologist, a neuro neurobiologist, neurodevelopmental biologist. Um, but is there a particular approach for treating neurodegenerative diseases that you find especially promising since you are quite close to this area? Um, yes. Yeah, so, so first, I wanted to maybe um, second what you said about the important of com importance of communicating, uh, not only just with patients, but with society at large, about the science that we do, especially science where um, we really generate human organs and human tissues. Uh, and, and maybe we should spend some time talking about the ethics of this work, and um, which is, of course, extremely important. So I feel that sometimes this lack of communication, it's on us, right? Us as scientists also need to do the kind of things perhaps we're doing right now in this podcast. We need to talk with society, just doing your work perfectly in your little lab and uh, um, simply talking with your postdocs or students or colleagues, I don't think that that's enough. Or there will be a misunderstanding out there in society from, from um, you know, from a variety of different um, walks of life. And I'm thinking now about politics, so especially and, and government, where many of the decisions that are made about science and what is uh, appropriate to do and not are based not on science, but on assumptions about the science. So if we continue to think about assumptions about science rather than talking to scientists about where the science really is, I think that's a problem. But we are part of the problem. We need to get out there and communicate our work more effectively. And so I always say mea culpa too for not perhaps communicating this effectively. Um, so in terms of translation of basic work, to really benefit at the end of the day patients in a clinic. I think that this ability to generate stem cell derived human organs, and we're thinking about the brain, but of course the brain never works on it by itself. It's really brain connected to the body. And so also you know that there are organoids of multiple other brain regions that can also be assembled in, in ways to 
to mimic also the interaction between the brain and the body. I think that these models not only will be useful for understanding neuropsychiatric illnesses like I described to you, but they can become uh, and they will become a powerful models of neurodegenerative disease. Many argue that because neurodegenerative diseases occur later in life, if you think about Parkinson's disease, or if you even if you think about ALS, um, it occurs relatively late compared to perhaps the stage of development that this human brain organoids model, which is very likely an early postnatal type of tissue. Uh, the reality is that in vitro, a lot of the um, perturbation and insult, being genetics, being environmental, that could cause a disease may actually become amplified simply because the brain is not acting in the context of an, the human brain organoids are not acting in the context of an entire brain or an entire body where things may be compensated somewhat, right, through the life of an organism, uh, of an individual. So there, there is a lot of evidence that, for example, some aspects of disease associated with ALS may be modeled and observable in vitro in lower motor neurons where they're made from stem cells in the dish. And like that, it will be in organoids and, and, and so on. So I think that these organoids can become a model for neurodegeneration and uh, they might become a model one to understand how human cells react to genetic and environmental insults that lead to neurodegeneration, um, to understand what matters really for the dem demise of those cells um, in response to genetic states uh, associated for disease, and then ultimately as platforms for drug screening for um, specific phenotypes that one could read in the culture. So we shouldn't really underestimate the powers of the system and the ability um, that they, uh, or perhaps the opportunity the system may offer for high throughput understanding of responses of human neurons before we even get to clinical trials. We often talk about personalized medicine. We often talk about clinical trials in the dish. Well, if you want to do a clinical trial in the dish and try to predict how human um, cells of the human brain will respond to a treatment, then these are the systems that can give you the throughput preclinically to look at that human brain. Yeah, I guess, you know, when when it became the big news story, stem cells was always about the cell as like a silver bullet. We're going to solve disease. We're going to replace organs. But yeah, it's right there, right? The, the low-hanging fruit in a more traditional paradigm, which could be used right now uh, for screening and understanding disease. It makes you realize what a, a tremendous impact to IPS cell discovery was and why it got the Nobel Prize so soon after its discovery. So yeah, yeah tremendous impact there. And, you know, a lot of that work, not the work that won the Nobel Prize, but it was happening at the same time. I, George Daly was, was done at Harvard, right? And a lot of the OG, you know, real pioneers in the stem cell field across uh, the field, a lot of that work has been done at Harvard. I don't need to name the names. Everybody knows them. Um, they're legends in the field. Uh, and, you know, I guess they're, I wouldn't say monotypic, but all science was of one type, you know, white males, uh, like most of the world professionally. And that, like most things in the world, maybe not enough, but it's changed at Harvard. Uh, there's a lot of change and flux going on in terms of the faculty there. And, and that really is shaping the science, right? You know, the people that do the science are the ones that shape the science. And, and that's the leadership at Harvard is the place 
Um, and, you know, I've always had these competing visions of, of science at Harvard, either as being, you know, this merciless crucible where young scientists are always looking over their shoulder for the scoop, or alternatively, some like intellectual salon where everybody's just, you know, kicking around ideas. I know it's not really either of those. And the reality is, is that it's it's not uh, firm. It's not fixed. It's a work in progress. Um, and we're in a world now, as we're talking about this golden era, where, where I don't want to call them crazy in a negative way, but really amazing things are happening. Synthetic embryos probably being the premier example. So you, as someone who is the science, the scientist shaping the science amongst the leadership, deciding not just the, the trainees that are doing the science, but also, you know, the lab uh, heads and PIs that are going to be the faculty at Harvard or among the faculty at Harvard, there's a lot to, to really figure there. And, and uh, what kind of science you want to embrace and foster at, at Harvard is, is, is constantly in motion. Tell me, what's your vision of, of how science will look moving forward at Harvard, how you'd like it to look, and, and some of the, the, the tough, you know, maybe ethical or, or, or other challenges that we're going to have to wrestle with, with, with the tremendous potential that's there? Uh, absolutely. I have the same type of feel about this place. And uh, I feel that it's a unique environment where there is really um, a lot of value associated with thinking, um, thinking big and thinking into the future. And the power really of having this incredible colleagues um, next to me um, that are willing to come out of their field and uh, walk into mine and, and try to foster science that I couldn't do uh, on my own. So I think that there is tremendous investment um, from, from the university and the community here in, in moving this field forward. And I think there should be tremendous investment because as we mentioned earlier in the post this is the magical moment. This is the moment where human biology is at the forefront, where we, for the first time really um, in, in meaningful way, we have this incredible opportunity to begin to ask questions about how human organs, human tissue are affected by disease and how they would respond to treatments and, and perturbations to perhaps alter these disease states. And this is uh, an opportunity that is offered by the fact that, as we discussed, the models of the human tissues are from stem cells are becoming more and more complex, more and more powerful, more and more telling. And I like to think about a future where perhaps we will be able to get to a state where we talk about perhaps predictive human biology, where we have studied and used these systems and perturbed them in meaningful ways to then be able to um, and read out the responses to these perturbations to perhaps predict how human cells would respond to drugs, to genetics, to disease. This is an amazing opportunity and will only succeed at the intersections of fields where stem cell biology and our own ability at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute and in stem cell regenerative biology at Harvard in our own department to develop these incredible human models, but it also will require all these new technologies that we mentioned. And so having um, the broad um, so close to us, the broad institute is, will be um, critical. 
and uh, as well as bringing together computational capacity and analytical capacities that are present at Harvard and can um, help us model all of this human data. So I think the future is a future of understanding human biology in ways that we never um, could do it in the past. And for what the brain is concerned, this will be critical. Mm -hmm. Our brain is different from the brain of other species. We as human beings are genetically all different and uh, um, therefore the features of our brains are different. Um, of course, we all have the same cells and all the you know same general connectivity, but what we can do with uh, what we have is different and there will be features of responding to disease and genetics and drugs so that each individual um, person uh, would respond to this different. So the future is human, um, for sure. The future is also a future where basic academic science that really has to do with building these human models from stem cells, for example, and understanding mechanisms of disease integrates really meaningfully with industry and entities outside of academia, which of course there are many in the Boston areas, and that's why it's so powerful, to actually take that basic discovery into the, the development of treatments. And this will require um, the evolution in a way of the relationship between academia and industry, whereby you know, this tra tradition, more traditional walls that are built on IPs and uh, technology transfer and uh, intellectual property and so on and so forth, which are, of course, real, real obstacles somehow, somehow will have to be overcome to enable the basic discovery to really take us all the way to that patient. It started with the patient, it starts with the patient and it ends with the patients and all of this work is does not fall anymore squarely into one place, either at the uni in a university or in a biotech company or in industry. It's really the real integration of the work across all of these different entities. So I think that the future, given these human models and the possibility of getting into human biology, we'll see much more intense interactions across all of these entities because everybody would benefit from it. Hmm. which is not exactly what happened in the past. Yeah, and I think you are at a perfect place to realize that future because, you know, as we've alluded to in the show, Harvard and the Boston area is perhaps the greatest place in the world for making a basic science discovery and ultimately translating it to treat patients in a matter of years. This has happened again and again and again in in the Boston area, um, and it's going to be happening well into the future. So we look to you, Dr. Arlotta, and your colleagues at Harvard and in Boston to actually guide the stem cell field to, and establish a model for how these things are done. So, well, thank you so much for for being here on the show. It's been a pleasure to to chat with you know someone at HSCI and at the Harvard community, and we do look to you to guide us into the future. And we have a a few science peripheral questions for you that we always like to ask the the guests here on the show, um, not directly related to the science, but you can make them about the science if you want. So, first, if you were not a scientist, what would you be? Oh. <laughs> In my heart, I'm an artist. Now, do I have any talent there? Probably not. <laughs> At least not of the real type. But uh, I love to think that perhaps I could have become an artist. Um, 
it would have been probably much harder to pay my bills, but that's that's what I um, I like to think um, in in my heart. So perhaps an artist. Yeah, that's fair. I think we've we've gotten that answer a few times, but from other guests here on the show, I think there's the link of creativity across art and science, right? There's yeah. certainly art in science as well. I was walking by the Broad Institute the other day and the Coke Institute as well. And you have all these beautiful immunofluorescence pictures just like facing the street and they are oh, art in itself beauty, as well, right? There is beauty in science that I wish more artists could see because um, you oftentimes look through the microscope and you walk away inspired by what nature can can build. Absolutely. And uh, the final question we'll ask you, and this is more of a, a, a big picture question, kind of a future generation sort of question is, if what is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given and that you would want to pass on to trainees? And it doesn't necessarily have to be professional advice, but what is this best piece of advice that you've been given? Well, this is a difficult question. I can think about many people um, in my past and present that have been so inspirational to me and really given me good advice. Um, at the time when I was starting my lab and wondering about the fact that it's never enough time to do everything. Um, I had a young lab, I had a very young family. Um, there was really no time to do everything. And then a senior colleague, who, um, um, you know, I was talking to often, said, looked at me and said, why are you thinking so much about time and not being enough time? It's nothing to do with time. It has all to do with what you can think about. And I remember this really stayed with me because um, it, it also made me really appreciate the importance of like, stopping for a moment and not just experiments, 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 but really, what can you think of? How much can you can you dare to go out there and how big are your ideas? And so I like to tell my students and postdocs, please don't worry about an a career in academia um, in terms of, will I be able to have enough time? Will I be able to do everything? Will I be able to combine my personal life with you know, all the things that you need to do? And, I always go back to this sentence, what matters is what you can think of. And that's mm. it. Yes. I mean, I, I can remember that whole idea being a source of great anxiety when I was a trainee, because it really was all in my mind. I had to create a whole career just out of my mind. And now every day that I'm allowed to do it, I think I'm lucky uh, to be able to do it for a career. I know it's not easy for everybody. It is such a great gift, right? The thing that gave me such anxiety now, it gives me such pleasure is it's just, oh, I just I just got to think something else up. Oh, that idea didn't work. Just think something else up. So it is a, a exactly. great a great pleasure, maybe a source of great anxiety, but it, it'll flip in between the two for sure. And in, in the career of any great scientist, and it's nice to see that you at the top, who's still making a great contribution, the mind is still working. We still got plenty of ideas to kick out of there landing in cell science or nature one of the other esteemed journals can't wait to hear what's next and read it um and perhaps have you on the show again paula this has been a, a really great chat and we really appreciate your perspective and you sharing it with us and, and the listeners so thanks again for joining us today thank you so much this has been amazing thank you that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary. 
and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thanks again to Dr. Alada for joining us for this episode. We had a great chat. We've also got another episode coming up in two weeks. Until then, thank you so much for listening.